I'm Toya Nash Randall, curator and catalyst of the multimedia narrative platform Voice Vision Value. This month marks the third anniversary of Voice Vision Value, and I'm excited to announce my newest partnership with nationally respected philanthropist, community leader, and entrepreneur Shonda Smith Baker. Sponsored by Voice Vision Value, Centering Conversations is a new exclusive segment of the award-winning podcast Conversations with Shonda. We're releasing new episodes every Wednesday during Black Philanthropy Month. Be sure to check out the full suite of Centering Conversation interviews this month where Shonda talks to Angel Robertson Daniel, Tashawn Macon, Kiana Thomason, and Coneal Mack. Beginning in September, Centering Conversations will drop every third Wednesday of the month. If you want to know more about Voice Vision Value, check us out at voicevisionvalue.org, where you can also read the Twin Cities chapter of the forthcoming book, Portraits of Us. Joining me in today's conversation is Kiana Thomason, a lifelong Kansas Cityan who has dedicated her career to the improvement of health and wellness. She has had a special focus on the powerful and resilient communities experiencing health injustice and people living in marginalized conditions. She serves as the president and CEO of Health Forward Foundation, an independent and purpose-led foundation with assets just under $1 billion, serving urban, suburban, and rural communities in the Kansas City region. We're going to look back and think, look what we were a part of that we knew was special, but we had no idea what it would be. That's right. That's right. And we get to be a part of it in this season, so... It's a, it's a beautiful thing to be in community with you. Um, loved meeting you by chance, right? And uh, to be in community and in support of Toya and, and her leadership. So just grateful for what this is blossoming uh, into. Me too. I have shared this in this, this series, Centering Conversations the importance and the growth of importance of being in a community of Black women, that Black women for sure have always been part of my very being, whether or not it was my my grandmothers or my aunties or my mother, my mother and my mothers, the mothers that have been in my, in my life. But as I have aged and, and certainly had tenure in leadership, the role that Black women have played. Yes and supporting me and honing in on my own vision, sharpening my voice, believing in my vision has been unmatched. I don't know what it's been in your life, but it has been everything for me. And I hope that I'm giving it back in the same way that I've received it. I can say the same. I often call myself a made woman. And I say that because of uh, all that I am, is because of who Black women are. And like you, I am blessed to be mothered by a powerful sister, mothered by a late grandmother who was a Renaissance woman before her time, um, variegated women, held their communities down, their families down, their churches down, and and themselves uh, down. And it's a blessing when I think back about all the very pivotal moments in my life, uh, the opportunities that I've been granted. Black women have always been by my side or behind the curtain as the platform, the cheering squad, the praying squad, the you got this 
And um, I'm just a uh, beneficiary of all that goodness. And so very, very thankful for them. Yeah. You are a daughter of the community in which you are working in now. I know the wonderful way that that works, right? I'm fifth generation, fourth or fifth generation of the community that I work in. It is something to have that legacy extended. What has been the best about that for you? That's a very um, reflective question because I think about it often. The best of it has been embodying the hope that our community has carried for so long with respect to leadership that comes from the community, that loves the community, uh, that will nurture and hold the community. Not that I'm the first, certainly not the first, but I'm among them. And so I think there is a blessing and a burden to that, right? Because the weight that gets attributed to not just the tax of the role in and of itself to lead Health Forward Foundation, but the hope that the community attributes to me being in the seat, the expectation that they attribute to me being in the seat and that I attribute to myself. So um, I always say the blessings and the burdens grow together. I'm certainly experiencing that and thankful um, to be a vessel for that hope and that aspiration. One of the things that I had to grow through is being in the community. And um, what's been beautiful is people can reference all of my family members. And then there was a point where I'm like, I just need to grow into who I'm going to be next. And I felt like I would travel through and people would remember me back when or remember someone back when versus folks that have moved somewhere and been able to like emerge and evolve into things, right? There's something about evolving in the same place that you've lived in. I can now appreciate, but for a while, boy, I was like, I'm, I, I just feel it. I feel it. And I imagine that you have felt the same. I have. Uh, it's so funny because the sector is talking a lot about trust-based philanthropy right now, right? And it's, it's, it's something that I think is deeply personal for me because it starts um, internally in really believing in the community that you support and them believing in you, right? That's bi-directional trust. And um, I have to live up to that trust every day. But what I am thankful for is that I came into the role with a heavy amount of trust that was already attributed because it's a part of my come from. Born and raised in Kansas City, um, have been serviced by many of the organizations that we now fund as a patient, was a part of in the 1980s, the disinvestment in what I call infrastructure violence of a highway, Highway 71 coming down and splitting up uh, the middle of the black community as we see done in many other black communities. I have close friends and family that were displaced by that. We were displaced by that, had to move to another area. Um, granddaughter of uh, a prominent African-American Methodist Episcopal uh, pastor, daughter of a nonprofit leader who led 
uh, a company called Inroads uh, that facilitated black and brown youth of color in corporate uh, America. And so I was known and I was trusted because of the shared experiences that I had. But I have to live up to that every day. And it's not hard for me, but I'm ever mindful of it. Mm-hmm. Ever mindful of it. So um, yes, there is there is a weight to that uh, and, a, and a blessing to it as well. Agreed. In the roles that we have had in the role that you are in, particularly focused on health, And I just want to focus on Black women leading in philanthropy and just a little bit of the the burden for a second, because I want to talk about stress. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about what stress is doing to our health. And if you have recommendations on how we might manage that better. That's a whole conversation. In it of- is a whole conversation. I couldn't wait I, to have it with you. I, I know. So let's try to let's try to you know hit the tip of the iceberg here. Um, first, I think it's important to understand that we all carry stress in our bodies, right? And in the black community, uh, we carry what is called an increased allostatic load. That is the amount of stress that one carries over time, over a lifespan. Not just the daily stress, but the stressors that come from um, living in communities that are affected by disinvestment, by being in a perpetual cycle of uh, systemic disenfranchisement, not being believed in clinical spaces, seeing our brothers, our uncles, our nephews killed in the streets by those that are supposed to protect them, having to armor up and have every I dotted and every T crossed before you present something at work, right? Because it's going to be discounted. It's going to be second-guessed. And you know, what's the old adage? You have to be twice as good to get half as much. We carry all that in our bodies and it's an extra tax, the Black tax. That produces higher levels of cortisol in our bodies, which produces inflammation. That inflammation produces all manner of dis-ease, disease and disorder. So we don't just have higher levels of diabetes because we don't know how to eat. Let's stop that narrative, (laughs) right? Let's stop that. We have higher levels uh, of disease, um, morbidity and mortality and lower levels of life expectancy because of the stress that we are carrying in our bodies. And it is time as Black women to just take the cape off. Mm. And I work every day um, to unlearn just like I just said, you have to be twice as good to get half as much. No, I am enough already, you know, and that's going to, that's going to shine through. And I have to work not to pass that jump down to my daughters, even to be mindful of what I'm, what I'm modeling before them, to be mindful of self-care, 
nourishment, mind, body, and spirit, not to go and work a 12-hour day and be proud of that. I'm not proud of that anymore like I was even five years ago. It's not helpful to me. It's not helpful to my, my mental health, my physical health, right? All of that. And so I have to be a well woman, a well CEO, especially as a black woman, to show up and do this world justice um, and to support justice work as we do at Health Forward in the community. So being well uh, is now top uh, of my agenda uh, for myself. Yeah, I hear a number of women talk about how there is too much work for them to take a vacation. And perhaps like you, I hear it differently now. I hear it actually as, as, a, as more concerning than I heard it before. A few years ago, um, one of my goals for work was to take all of my vacation. And I expressed it and I started moving to this thing of leaving no benefits behind because I'm owed that time so that I could renew and refresh and replenish. But there is a cape that goes on that suggests that you can't take a day off or something will fall apart. And so not just in the daily practice, but in the annual practice of just taking a vacation is becoming normed. Mm-hmm. It's becoming normed. And I, I see this movement that I love of Black women taking care of themselves and holding each other accountable as Black women in community with one another um, for your sister to take care of herself. and. It's a beautiful thing because it really just deconstructs all the narratives that we've carried for so long. We can be strong and powerful and rest well. Mm -hmm. You touched a little bit on some of the health issues that we face. And um, as I was preparing for this conversation with you, I know that you have some adjusted language around health disparities. Yes. Will you share what that is and why that is? Absolutely. It's important that we are mindful of our language and how our language can contribute to narratives that are harmful and even decreasing the life expectancy of the communities um, that we're in and that we support. Narratives shape resources. They shape beliefs. They shape policies. And when we think about this notion of the communities that we serve, it's really important to start from a place of their strengths, their contributions, their aspirations, and then describe their need. It's what we call asset framing. And when we think about health disparities, which we like to say health injustices, because disparities gives this uh, connotation that these things are just happening. But that's not the case. What's happening are social and political decisions that are being made that distribute power, money, resources, influence, networks, connections. And when those are unequally 
or inequitably distributed, um, what we see is health injustice in our communities. And so it's important to name things as they are. That way we can begin to address what's really happening, which are often root cause systems, structures, practices, and policies that are making people unwell. In essence, moving it from the communities and people that have been impacted by the systems to holding accountable the systems that have created the unjust outcomes. That's right, because people are not broken. They've never been broken. And when people have the same level of choice, because all choice is not created equally, people choose well for themselves. And so uh, it's important that our work be focused on addressing the systems, the policies, the practices, and the narratives that are at play and not in the work of uh, people fixing. People are okay, uh, and they'll be better if we can get our our systems together. Yeah, that's a a really great segue into tell us more about the work that you're leading, the organization, and 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 where you're focusing on. Yes. So I get to lead Health Forward Foundation. We are a public, independent, purpose-led foundation uh, serving the Kansas City region. We work to support and build inclusive, powerful, and healthy communities characterized by racial equity and economically just systems. Those two pathways of racial equity and economic justice are the pathways that we pursue towards health equity because when you think about health and poor health and how health is shaped, it's uh, not because of race, that we see poor health in communities of color, it's because of racism, right? Again, that naming that we talked about. Oftentimes, most times, when one's assets and wealth grows, their health improves as well. There's years and years of data that backs that up. And so we choose um, and pursue those pathways as a part of health and wealth building. We use three Uh, really uh, tools in our toolkit, our leadership, um, our voice, which must be authorized by the community, which means we have to be proximate to who we are working with and supporting. Our advocacy through policy uh, work, grassroots work included, uh, as well as direct and indirect lobbying. And our resources, which for us is grant making. And on average, we um, allocate about 30 million a year and grant making in the Kansas City region, funding everything from health care to health policy change in community systems, from affordable housing uh, to digital equity, to building and amplifying the power that exists in communities to improve the quality of our democracy. So that is the work uh, of Health Forward Foundation uh, in a nutshell. Yeah, and how do you see democracy and the improvement of democracy intersecting with health outcomes? Well, I think that um, number one, an engaged citizenry is a healthy citizenry. Mm -hmm. And when you are able to have a voice and a say in the policies that shape your life, whether it be transportation, 
food distribution and nutrition, the cost of such, those, of course, who represent you, where railroads and streets and highways are built, to my point earlier, mm-hmm. all that influences our health and our well-being. And so an informed community and an empowered community that is exercising its right and to vote is a healthier community. And so we work uh, to ensure that there is a strong, multiracial, multi-ethnic community of citizens who are educated and using the power of their vote. And Lord, is it needed. <laughs> it's, it's needed now more so than ever. We are beginning to see rights that I think just were the norm for us to two or three generations past civil rights that we never thought would be at risk. Uh, they are being undone or attempting to be undone. We're seeing policies go through state houses in uh, many red states that are an affront to the well-being of Black and brown communities. And we see continual disinvestment in infrastructure and in resources that would improve the health and well-being of our communities. And so civic engagement in the Kansas City region is something that we are really prioritizing. Tiana, the sort of the healthcare rollbacks, if you will, policy rollbacks, the way that I have seen them in specifically seeing them be described are mostly around um, the health areas in which women have been impacted. Is it broader than that? Is it really based on women or is it is it? Are you speaking the reproductive health rights? I am thinking about reproductive, but I don't know whether or not I should be concerned, for instance, for my sons. Like when I look at what's happening in terms of public policy and healthcare, um, because it's framed so explicitly around women, and then we know that brown and black women, due to the the differences already, will will fare worse. But what I don't know is whether or not there's health policies and practices that are being rolled back, let's say, for Black men? I think um, you are spot on in um, seeing, without being able to really crystallize, but seeing the connection between the rollback of reproductive rights and how that affects Black men. Oftentimes, Black women, when given the choice to be self-determining for their body, make the choice to pursue an education or to pursue uh, and secure a quality livable wage before they bring life into the earth realm. And we see an affront to that choice, I think, under the guise of life, but that doesn't always come through and translate to other areas where we don't see life being prioritized. Mm-hmm. And so at the essence of this is economics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and stripping the economic power of Black and brown women who oftentimes will prioritize their education, their career, if given that opportunity that has intergenerational impacts on not just their daughters, but also their sons. And then the the broader, from the broadest sense, uh, we have multiple states that still have not implemented the benefits of the Affordable Care Act for Medicaid expansion that has a direct impact on Black men as well, who are unable to uh, oftentimes get quality health care access as one of the biggest health disparities, just access, 
right? Getting in the door to receive the quality care. And so to your point, it is multi-layered. The reproductive rights is what's um, often talked about right now, but there are about eight states in that Southeast region where we see um, higher numbers of Black people who are uncovered uh, from a health coverage perspective. For some of the areas of health that should be concerning for Black women, what are some of the areas that we should be paying attention to? Mm. For Black women, certainly our heart health, certainly our uh, higher risk of breast cancer uh, or undetected breast cancer, I should say. Oftentimes, uh, Black women have very dense breast tissue and will often require a screening beyond a regular breast exam to detect cancer. And for those that are uncovered who can't get an ultrasound, a breast ultrasound, or uh, an ABUS screening, you're more at risk. And then, of course, the mental health crises that is really running rampant in our country right now is disproportionately affecting Black women, especially our teen girls. We see suicide increasing. We see eating disorders increasing in Black women, uh, Black teen girls. And the allostatic load that we spoke of earlier, we already know we're carrying increased risk for inflammation because of that. And so really uh, taking time to be well from a mental health perspective. Fortunately, the stigma Uh, as it relates to uh, having a therapist, getting mental health treatment is waning in our communities, which is really good. I'm loving that. I'm loving seeing Black people talk about their therapists. Uh, That's a beautiful thing. Those are the things that I would uh, immediately point to, but also the environmental aspects uh, that we are seeing in our communities, which makes voting really important for Black women. And I think voting uh, is one of the number one health issues for Black women, where those landmines are being placed, right? How the community is resourcing the nutritional deserts in the community. All that are all um, health injustices uh, and are placing Black women who are nurturing Black communities at higher risk. You know, we're coming out of the pandemic, and I don't know about you, but in the last week, I have encountered about five people that have tested positive for COVID. Mm. Are, we, are we out of that? You know, are we back in it? I mean, are we still there? And just what I mean, should we still be thinking about protecting ourselves from COVID? Absolutely. So COVID is now what's called endemic. It's just going to be with us, right? It's going to be here um, very much like the flu. However, we still are seeing a very high incidence of death from COVID. Um, It's not talked about as much as it was two years ago because it's endemic. But the same practices that uh, kept us safe and protected in COVID are still necessary. And so uh, it's not gone anywhere. Um, It's just a matter of it becoming the new normal in our communities, which makes healthcare access, health quality, being uh, a good steward of your voting rights, uh, all that much more important. So to bring it back a little bit to to you and your journey, how did um, this journey to Health Forward, what was that journey like for you? Were you always interested in health? You know, I won't say that I was always interested in health. I was always interested in serving my community. 
as early as I can remember, I didn't have a name for it, but social work is what it ended up being for me. And it's so funny um, you asked that because there were many people who dissuaded me from social work who said, you'll never make money in that. Yeah, your clients will have more money than you. That has not been my testimony, thankfully. Uh, there's a there's a scripture in Proverbs that says your gift will make room for you and bring you before the great. And that has certainly been my experience. I, I will say that this journey of uh, towards philanthropy and philanthropic leadership is really a part of my DNA code. Some of the come from that I spoke of earlier, it is um, just a part of who my experience in this world is growing up in a community that has experienced disinvestment and seeing the community resource themselves and care and love on each other. And that is what philanthropy is, right? The love of humankind at its core, the meaning. And so I've always seen that in action with Black women being the predominant vessels of that investment in each other, in our communities, not just our churches, where philanthropy is often talked about in neighborhoods, in our schools. So I've I've had somewhat of a windy path with that grounding and have been in health and how health happens for over 25 years prior to uh, coming to uh, Health Forward Foundation. I spent time in the United States Senate focusing on public policy uh, and helping to shape the congressional vote of um, Senator Jane Carnahan. I've worked in the safety net health space at an FQHC leading behavioral health and substance use treatment for a very large health center for a predominantly Black community, served in the health plan space uh, in the Blue Cross Blue Shield system as an officer uh, and executive in the company building many of the health plan products, models, including their health equity investments. And so this progression to philanthropy really just uh, leverages all that beautiful grounding that I have as being a beneficiary of philanthropy at my roots, really having an aerial view of how health happens. Uh, And so it's been a beautiful journey. Do you remember when you first heard the formal word philanthropy? Because as you were talking about it, you know, in church, it's offering, right? You know, the communal way in which we move and support each other. I remember I was probably in my 20s when I encountered the formal role of philanthropy. I was uh, at Florida A&M University uh, getting my bachelor's degree in social work when I heard the word philanthropy uh, in one of my classes. Uh, And in that context, uh, it was discussed uh, with respect to the origins of social work. Many years following, I only heard it talked about in the context of big checks, big giving, often by corporations or families. It is uh, a word that we don't attribute often to the Black community. Uh, But when you look at Black giving, while it may not be the same dollar amount, when you think about the kind of like the per capita, we are among the biggest philanthropists in this country. So no, my understanding and experience with philanthropy has evolved. and It's always been a part of my life for sure. 
I saw your social work background. And while I'm not a social worker, because you have an undergrad and a master's in social work, I came out of an organization that was part of the settlement house movement. Mm. Okay. So Jane Addams, which I imagine was part of who you were reading about these, these neighborhood centers, right? At its core was about co-creating and coming in and helping people navigate. And it spoke to me because I think part of that work and my, and me too, right? Like in my family, they were like, why would you want to go into work, honey? That doesn't pay you any money. Um, But to me, it was around translating and bridging between the community to systems and systems back to community, right? To, To make sure that everybody was understanding all the needs of all the things. It wasn't really a value of who was on top and who was in the bottom. But it was ensuring that the community had what it needed to continue to move along a path of success. That's right. And that is the essence of social work. It's working with people and communities in the context of all the systems that they live and exist in and improving those systems first. Absolutely. The other space that I see just this exciting new energy around is HBCUs. Yes. And I know you come from that community and fam you, and I can see your face just light up. I wish I would have made my way to one because I can, again, just like so many things in the review, I realize the importance of being around a community of, of your people in a way that nourishes you and um, just in tribute. Can you just express what that means to be sort of growing in that space, which is an HBCU? Oh, yes. And I'm going to pray I don't cry because I'm about to send my baby to Morgan State University okay. in just days. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, man, I have been well loved by the HBCU community. I remember years ago, um, Black man at my high school who planted the seed after uh, a different world back in the day to go to HBCU. He said, You got the rest of your life to be a minority, go to HBCU. And I didn't know what that meant until I got there. Being shaped by an HBCU is one of my greatest life's gifts. The community, the value of community, the value of excellence, the grounding in who we are and whose we are at an HBCU holds you for a lifetime. It comes with, I think, an increased mindfulness and expectation to be of service in whatever your role is to the Black community. It's something that um, most people from an HBCU just cannot shake, don't want to shake. Wherever we are, we are leading uh, and imparting in beautiful ways into Black communities. I am uh, a believer in HBCUs, an investor a donor to HBCUs and believe that it should be a part of the undergraduate experience for every Black person if they can. Mm, I I love that. I love that. And for those of us that did not go, (laughs) I have been spending um, a lifetime of recreating spaces that uplift um, Black excellence and, and expectation. And one of those communities is Voice, Vision, Value, Black Women Leading in Philanthropy, Vision, and curated by our dear friend, Toya Nash Randall. And uh, we touched on this a little bit in the beginning, the feeling of we're on the ground floor of something that will go on for a very long time. 
and you've been in philanthropy for a while. And I know when I came in um, looking for my tribe, looking for those that have come before so that I could have the, the, the footprints to walk in. Can you just talk about what this community has meant and perhaps your hopes for it? Absolutely. What I believe for it, it exists beyond hope. What I believe for it is that it will be the future of philanthropy because we are the largest demographic Black women are of people of color in philanthropy and the browning, right, of our country that certainly extends to this work. I believe that we will be the future of philanthropy. I think this this voice, vision, value um, community is has been so beautiful and a necessary part of my journey, uh, my leadership journey. Got exposed to it about two and a half, two years ago, maybe. I remember reading the book that Toya Nash Randall produced, co-curated with others, and I remember just coming alive and feeling held and seen and valued and appreciated and giving all that back to the sisters whose stories were jumping off the pages at me in that moment and getting to be a part of now this book project where Tracy and I, who used to be at the Kaufman Foundation, Tracy O'Neill Ellis and I co-curated and brought this community of women together uh, in the Kansas City region, as you did, in your community to laugh, to cry, to encourage, to support, to just say, girl, I get it. You don't even have to speak. I see your face. Come here. Let me love on you. Let me hug you. Let me tell you that you are enough. That idea was bomb, you know? And so that's what it's been for, for me. And it's been very affirming to see it recognize that Black women are leading philanthropy at all levels not just the CEO level, not just the C-suite level, but we are the spine in grants management, right? We are the connectors and the brokers as program officers in the community. And we are the power amplifiers uh, as community mobilizers. And so just being connected to women all over this country through this project, getting to meet you in all your power and glory and your work, It's just a beautiful experience. So getting to be a part of this uh, has been so soul nourishing for me. Agreed. One of the things that you just said, right, coming in the room and being able to acknowledge that you see someone and you see the work and their contributions. Often when you ascend into the role, because I'll talk about C-suite and CEO for a minute, I think there is a belief, and this is not untrue, but that you get acknowledged enough. But yet, when we come in those rooms and we say that to each other, you can feel how much it is needed. That's right. That's right. And there is something really different about having your sister say, I see what you are doing. Mm -hmm. There is, there is. When you're affirmed by your sisters, affirmed by the Black community, um, uh, and those that you are working with, whether you know them or not, but you're doing similar work, it is everything to say that you are doing a great job. This is hard work. You're holding it down. We have you, you know? It's something special about that because we seek that from one another, whether we're honest about it or not. 
I think if you're in, especially in philanthropy in this in this industry with such massive wealth, we all carry, I hope we should carry an accountability to be a part of the redistribution of that in equitable ways. To have that work and that voice affirmed uh, by other sisters is necessary just for our spirits to be well in the work. Yeah. For the book project, Portraits of Us, do you have a hope for what that book will offer to the broader community? Yeah, I do. I, I hope that the book offers what I believe the movie Hidden Figures offered to the scientific community. I hope and believe the book will unveil, uh, remind, and strengthen the belief in the brilliance of the leadership of Black women in this sector at all levels. And I hope that this is just the beginning of a very long, fruitful, celebrated journey for voice vision value that continues to gain in a multiracial, multi-ethnic group of comrades and co-conspirators to support and in support of Black women leading this work. Good deal. I have two more questions. One I didn't have until you just answered that question. And that one is that I get asked often, particularly from our, our white sisters, on how they can better be allies to us and for us. I think part of it you just answered, but do you have anything else that you might add um, just in general for people that want to be allies to Black women in these worlds? Believe Black women and believe in Black women. Mm -hmm. Uh, Believe uh, our experiences are true and believe that if we are at the table, you best believe we've worked the hardest to get there because of all the levels and layers of doubt, the discounting that we've had to experience, all the, whether it be self-imposed or societally imposed requirements to be better, to be sharper, to be stronger, you best believe we're the most prepared to be at that table. Uh, So believe in us uh, and believe us. And then the last question I've asked all the women, which is, who do you have to be in this work? Ah, oh, man. Um, I have to personally be rooted in my come from um, that I spoke of earlier. Never, ever taking my eyes off of the experiences that shaped me. I have to be nourished, mind, body, and spirit. I have learned that I cannot pour from an empty cup. And so taking time to uh, invest in my spiritual practices, my physical practices, my mental health practices, I have to be nourished. I have to be well partnered because I know that my assignment is heavy and I can't do it alone. And so I have to be open to the gifts that people carry and open to receiving those gifts as a part of this work uh, and a part of my assignment. I have to be committed to ensuring that there is space and room 
for as many Black women as want to come along on this journey. I have to be clear, lastly, about what's for me to do and what's not for me to do because I have taken off the cape and trying to keep it off. So clarity about my assignment is really important for me. Thank you so much, Kiana. Thank you. Thank you for who you are. And thank you for what you're doing and the boldness and the courage in which you are pursuing it. Thank you, y'all. That is a wrap. Kiana Thomason from Health Forward. If you want to know more about Voice Vision Value, check us out at voicevisionvalue.org, where you can also read the Twin Cities chapter of the forthcoming book, Portraits of Us.